Good morning. The scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 7 and 8, and verses 14 to 23. You can find it on page 6 of your bulletin if you'd like to read along. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Buenos días. La lectura de hoy viene del Evangelio de Lucas, capítulo 22, en los versículos 7 y 8, 14 y 23. Está en la página 7 de su boletín. Cuando llegó el día de la fiesta de los panes sin levadura, en que debía sacrificarse el cordero de la Pascua, Jesús envió a Pedro y a Juan, diciéndoles, vayan a hacer los preparativos para que comamos la Pascua. Cuando llegó la hora, Jesús y sus apóstoles se sentaron a la mesa. Entonces les dijo, he tenido muchísimos deseos de comer esta Pascua con ustedes antes de padecer. Pues les digo que no volveré a comerla hasta que tenga su plena cumplimiento en el reino de Dios. <coughs> Luego tomó la copa, dio gracias y dijo, tomen esto y repártanlo entre ustedes. Les digo que no volveré a beber el fruto de la vid hasta que venga el reino de Dios. También tomó pan y después de dar gracias lo partió, se lo dio a ellos y dijo, este pan es mi cuerpo entregado por ustedes. Hagan esto en memoria de mí. De la misma manera tomó la copa después de la cena y dijo, esta copa es el nuevo pacto en mi sangre que es derramada por ustedes. Pero sepan que la mano de la que, me, de la que va a traicionarme está con la mía sobre la mesa. A la verdad, el Hijo del Hombre se irá según está decretado, pero hay de aquel que lo traicionara. Entonces comenzaron a preguntarse unos a otros, ¿quién de ellos haría esto? Well, we're finishing up our short series, Questioning Christianity. It's been four weeks of examining common doubts and questions that a lot of us, maybe you, have about the Christian faith, reasons people walk away from Jesus. And so one by one, uh, we've been examining uh, objections like these. Christianity is just too exclusive, or the Bible is just too unreliable, or hell, this idea of hell is unfair and hateful. Uh, today, we're wrapping up, and this is the topic we're looking at. There's just too much pain in the world. Have you ever thought that? 
How can a good God allow so much suffering? Let's pray. Let's pray before we talk about this. It's an impossible topic, God, humanly, to address adequately, let alone sufficiently or perfectly. It just can't be done. And so what we need is not just human words, not just human ideas, but your words and your thoughts and for your spirit to come and penetrate our hearts and our minds. God, I personally, I, I feel distracted in my mind in a lot of ways, I feel weak to the task. So I pray for grace for me and grace for every person here that your word would come alive to us, that it would not only come in all of its truth, but also in all of its soul-satisfying power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On November 13th in Paris, in a series of coordinated attacks, gunmen and suicide bombers violently ended the lives of 130 people, leaving 300 and 68 others maimed and injured. And that was after a double suicide bombing ripped through a shopping district in the city of Beirut just hours earlier, also killing many. That same day, you might know, a massive earthquake, magnitude 7.0, struck Japan just off its western Shores. Thankfully, there were not widespread casualties from this natural disaster, but there was widespread fear and concern of mass casualties because, you know, they've been there before. It was one of the worst Fridays in recent history. One of those days that had us all thinking, just when is this going to stop? Archbishop Desmond Tutu, writing about apartheid in South Africa, wrote, Of course, there were times when you had to whistle in the dark to keep your morale up. And you wanted to whisper in God's ear, God, we know you are in charge, but can't you make it a little more obvious? It was one of those days where even those with faith found themselves crying out that God would make his presence and his power just a little bit more obvious, please. It's natural, it's common, and even to this day here, our hearts cry. There's just too much suffering and evil in this world, and our hearts question. If God is good or loving, how could he allow things to be this way? For many of us, for many of you, it's not just a philosophical puzzle, is it? For many of you, it's not just a matter of witnessing events taking place on the other side of the world. It's deeply personal, and it's a deeply present pain that you are suffering. You've recently lost someone you love, or maybe you're struggling with chronic pain, or a life-threatening disease, or the darkness of depression, or the, disoriented, the disorientation of dashed dreams, 
or the insufferable pain of a broken relationship or the ceaseless stress of financial struggle, you name it. It's here, it's here, it's here. The pain and the struggle of suffering. But in the presence of so much pain, the question naturally arises, what is God doing about it? And why didn't he do anything in the first place? Naturally, we try to cope with this problem. We try to solve this problem. And what I want to talk about in our remaining time is the ways in which we have four things that we often say. Say in our hearts, maybe say out loud. Suffering is minor, ways that we cope. We say suffering is minor. Suffering makes me mad. Suffering is meaningless. And here we have a passage of Scripture that addresses each of these cries of our heart. Number one, suffering is minor. Oftentimes, in an effort to cope with the pain that we experience or that we see and witness, we try to downplay the impact of that pain. We say it's not that bad or that it's bad but never bad enough that you should be complaining about it all the time. There are many forms of spirituality, including distorted forms of Christianity, that will tell you this, sort of spiritualizing your pain, communicating that the more mature you are, the more you should levitate above it. Shouldn't impact you because it's real but not really real. In fact, according to Eastern religions, including Christian science here in the West, suffering to them is an illusion. It's not even real. If you've looked into or studied Buddhism, you understand where that idea comes from. But notice here how different the Christian Bible is. Here is Jesus with his disciples, his followers, talking candidly about his suffering. He doesn't downplay it, does he? Notice in verse 15, he says to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's instituting what we now know in the Christian church as the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or communion. And the whole symbolism of this meal involves suffering. Bread and wine representing Jesus' tortured body. His blood, his death, the judgment that he suffered in our place. Do you understand every time you take of this meal, every time you eat of the bread and the wine, this is a declaration that the God of this meal takes the pain and sorrow of your sin and suffering seriously. That it's real. That it's not minor. And notice that the meal that Jesus is sharing with his disciples is the Passover meal. This, of course, is that Jewish meal which comes from Exodus chapter 12 that commemorates Israel's rescue from Egypt. They would actually eat this meal and tell the old stories. It was a story of deliverance and victory, yes. But remember, the whole backdrop of the story 
is slavery, is oppression, is violence, is evil. The Bible encourages you to remember, not forget, not deny, and not minimize, but remember your stories of pain. The Bible acknowledges that your pain and the pain of this world is very real to you and to God. That none of your tears are ever forgotten. That not a single incident of evil or injustice will ever be left unaddressed. That God never turns a blind eye to it or shuts his ears deaf to it. People are the image of God, the Bible tells us. So when evil afflicts us, God takes it personally. Do you know a God like that? who doesn't minimize your pain, not for a second. Suck it up is found nowhere in the Bible. Your suffering is not minor. But number two, sometimes we swing to the other extreme. We say, no, not suffering is minor. We say, suffering makes me mad because I feel it and because I see it. So mad that some of us want to abandon God or the idea of God all together. We hold him responsible, of course. Some of you believe in God, but you almost don't want to anymore. You're furious with him. He's driving you nuts, breaking your heart. We feel like evil and suffering is bad and people shouldn't suffer, so that's just not fair. How many times have we said that, felt that, even in the last week or two? Some of you are ready, therefore, to unfriend God, if you could. But listen, think about this with me for a moment. If there's no God, upon what basis can you call that suffering unfair? If there is no God, no moral judge of the universe, what gives you the moral place or right to call that pain of suffering unfair? That's the question one atheist who later became a Christian started pondering in his spiritual journey, and this is what he wrote. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but just a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really, really unjust, and not simply that it didn't happen to please my private fantasies. You see, you might be upset with God And you might even be tempted to do away with the idea of God. But you see, if you do that, you eliminate the very basis upon which you can experience outrage and anger against the suffering of the world. You're prosecuting God on a basis of a moral standard that you'd only have if God existed. If you actually have a standard of good and evil, if you abandon God, you abandon your ability to be morally outraged 
at evil in this world. What in fact you find in the Bible is a firm basis to feel the way you by instinct feel because what we find in the Bible is not just permission for you to be mad at suffering, but a portrait of a God who is mad at evil and suffering. And not only this, but a God who is so upset by it, so intolerant of the world remaining as it is in its current broken state, that he is a God that does not stand far off. And he's not even a God that stands outside of our pain and gives us a way to escape out of it and find him, which is the way most religions of the world relate to the pain of the world. God helping you to escape out of it Here in the Bible, we find a God who jumps into it. A God who does not stand far off, but rather who takes our pain by taking our own flesh in the person of Jesus. Here's a God who takes it so personally that he dares to, no, indeed, he does suffer with us and suffer for us. That in Jesus, God therefore knows firsthand hardship, weariness, the rejection of betrayal, which Jesus was talking about here, that he was about to suffer, and which some of you today are suffering. Of poverty, of imprisonment, of torture, of death on a Roman cross. And to think that all that physical suffering, as intense as it was, was in fact nothing compared to the spiritual suffering of his soul that he experienced on the cross, as we talked about last week. That there Jesus bore the suffering of hell, the wrath of God, the just payment for all of our self-centeredness and rejection and indifference towards God infinitely unbearable suffering that he bore in my place. The Bible presents to us a God with scars. A God who has tasted violence. A God who, you know, made himself breakable. And we're told As Jesus takes bread and breaks it and says, this is a little bit like me. God, like broken bread. God, who made himself vulnerable as we step in the coming weeks to the Christmas season, Advent, the story of a God who came as a baby, who of all things made himself killable, damnable, judgeable, that he would suffer in our place to make an end of all of our suffering, most especially the just suffering we deserve for our sin. God takes it so seriously that he was willing 
to take that suffering himself. As Isaiah Majakdao, an author and pastor from Sudan, wrote a book called Suffering in God, a theological reflection on the war in Sudan, he writes this profoundly. The cross of Jesus tells us that although suffering is still a present reality, God has done something about it and he will completely and totally eliminate it in the future. When in the severity of our suffering we perceive God as either absent or distant from us, the cross reminds us that he is both present and suffering with us. Nick Walterstorff is a professor at Yale University who wrote a powerful book called Lament for a Son, which he penned after the tragic death of his teenage boy. He writes this about the God that he was discovering. Yes, even as a a Christian man and as a professor of things Christian, rediscovering this God through the experience of a broken father's heart. He says this, God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart. Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God, a great mystery. To redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power but sent his beloved son to suffer like us. Through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil, instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. Do you know this God who suffers, who suffered on the cross, who shares in it, not from a distance, but together with you, indeed, on the cross, in your place. And yet, of course, even as Walter Storff himself tells us that instead of explaining our suffering, God shares in it, our hearts often cry for explanation, doesn't it? And so oftentimes we say, no, suffering is minor. Okay, well, suffering makes me mad, but then we also conclude Suffering just must be meaningless. I can't fathom an explanation for why this might be so. Sure, it's comforting to know that God is near, and surely it's comforting to know that God has suffered. But for what purpose, for what meaning, am I or another going through just this? The Bible does tell us that there are a number of near-term explanations that we can give for some of our sufferings, especially if we are armed with the promise of those who are in Christ. That those who are called the children of our Heavenly Father through Jesus can know 
that no suffering is ever for your punishment or for your judgment, only and always somehow mysteriously for your good. And by good, I don't just mean your near-term happiness. The Bible means the good of making you more like the glorious, radiant image of Jesus. That through our pain, he shapes our character. In fact, through our pain, we can see God more clearly and more fully. As Walter Storff himself said, it was through the prism of my tears I have seen a suffering God. Which implies, of course, there are certain realities about the cross and what Christ has done for me that I will not get except by bearing his sufferings in my own flesh. The ways in which our pain strengthen our faith or deepen our compassion or teach us how to love more truly, more effectively. These things are true, but they don't explain everything still. There's still a mountain of mystery that leaves our hearts wondering, doesn't it? that we will not always be able to point to precisely how our pain is bearing fruit, even for those who are in Christ. And This is why so often many of us conclude, if I can't figure it out, if I can't muster up an explanation, then there must be no reason. My suffering must indeed be meaningless. I want to suggest briefly here, and we can talk about it more in our Q&A time, that maybe the problem here, though it's understandable that we would fall into that mentality, that crushed heartedness of concluding that there could not possibly purpose to this, maybe the problem here isn't that we're asking too much of God, but rather that we're asking too much of ourselves demanding too much of our own ability and capacity to figure things out. As many others have put it smartly, wisely, that even if God were to explain it to you, do you presume that you would have the ability to wrap your mind and heart around it? There's a quiet pride of soul, isn't there, for us to say, if I can't think of it, if I can't figure it out, then it must be meaningless. If I can't see it with my own eyes, it could not possibly have purpose. Some of you that have small children, looking at Madison swaying back there with hers, Understand a little bit of how this is like as you're trying to parent your child. If any of you have been in our nursery or cared for a baby, an infant, you know exactly how it is. You're changing their diaper, which is not exactly saving their life, but it's making life a little bit better. It's for their good. But it's not uncommon for a little child to absolutely hate what you are doing, screaming in terror, kicking their legs, first of all, with inhuman strength resisting you almost as if you're coming after them with sheer violence. And no matter how much you explain, I'm just changing your diaper, hey, this is going to be really quick, and you're just fumbling for words. The kid is looking you in the eye, 
sometimes in sheer terror. And if they had words, they would say it. You really hate me. You're trying to kill me. It doesn't change even as they grow up a little bit. Paula and I, every meal, we go through this tussle with our son, Jeremiah, trying to wipe his, fa- wipe his face. This isn't even anything dramatic, and he is screaming bloody murder. He hates it. There's a gap in understanding and ability to comprehend what's going on between this child and an adult isn't there. They don't get it. They can only conclude what they feel. How much more so, how much more so, how much greater is that gap of comprehension between us and God? That even when he might be doing a cosmic diaper change, and I don't mean that, say that to make light of our pains, but even when he intends to and in fact is doing us good, That oftentimes we have no capacity to conclude anything, but you really hate me. There's no way what's happening is anything but pure evil. And here we have in verse 22, Jesus invoking the great Old Testament title, the Son of Man, which is a title given to a Messiah figure in the Old Testament, someone who would come looking sort of like a man, but most certainly also God. Sovereign over all things, in control of even the evil and terror of life. Jesus telling us, I am in your suffering, the Son of Man. If we could see what he sees and know what he knows, maybe we might understand that, no, dear friend, your suffering is not meaningless. And he says in the rest of that sentence, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, appealing to the great cosmic divine decrees of God who in fact purposed that his very own Son would be tortured and torn to shreds in his soul and in his body for the salvation of the world. But who would have fathomed that this is where that suffering was leading? That this is how it would all end? That there could be any good that could come out of a Roman cross? That there could be any life that could come out of a death? That there could be any heaven that could be purchased through an experience of literal hell? Yet this was what God decreed, yes, even in suffering. The suffering of his soul. And if he did it through and to his son, Jesus, can't he also do it in you? In your suffering. In your pain. You see, you may not know why God has seen fit to allow that pain in your life. And you may not, I need to say, may not know with specific understanding why God has done it so. But one reason why, or one conclusion you can draw, is that he 
could not and did not do it to you because he didn't love you. Because he doesn't care. Because he's aloof to your pain. It might be this or that or the other thing. But it's not because he doesn't love. This love that in fact was demonstrated for you in the sufferings of Christ's cross. And you say that doesn't feel satisfying for me to endure years, maybe a whole life of not knowing. Of wavering in this, this feeling, this sense, this impression that my pain might be meaningless, but to try to believe that it isn't. Well, dear friends, do you know that one day, someday, all things will be brought to life? One day, the meaning and the purpose of everything that God saw fit to allow in your life will be made clear and will be held before you that you might understand and behold even the glory of God in your pain. Jesus is telling us this. He indicates so in verse 16 when he says, as he's distributing this wine, this bread, he says, For I tell you, I will need not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And again in verse 18, For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What Jesus is telling us is from that night on, even through this day, he is on a bread and a wine fast. And that is because he is tying this meal which puts before us his suffering body, his broken flesh in the bread and the wine. And he's telling us it's pointing forward to another meal, a greater meal, a banquet, a wedding supper, the day when finally all sense will be made of all pain. All things will be made right. All broken things will be made whole. This is the day of the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we hear about this in Roman, Revelation chapter 19. Listen to these words. Then I hear what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is Jesus himself pointing forward to the day. This table, this communion, this brokenness even pointing forward to the day when the day of the end of pain will finally arrive. Your suffering is long, but it will not be forever. The mystery, the cloud of mystery is thick, but one day it will be clear. The suffering of this world appears meaningless, yet one day it will be full of 
meaning. God is not finished yet. The story is still being written. That one day God will bring about his future, not just of comfort for our wounds, but restoration of our wounds. He will give you all that you ever desired for, even in your pain, longing not just for comfort, but for recompense and restoration and resurrection. That all evil and all death and all suffering will be so radically conquered and transformed that it won't just end, but rather it will produce for us a future life of perfection and infinite joy. Can you imagine it? That day is coming soon, this Advent, Jesus making all things right. That the Apostle Paul might somehow mind-bogglingly conclude in 2 Corinthians that our sufferings today are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. There is meaning to your sufferings. You just don't know it yet. But one day, someday... We can trust that there will be a God who will answer these questions. While he's already answered these great questions about him being a God who does love us so, who's near to us, who bears our sufferings, who's died in order to bring about a day one day that will bring an end to all of our sufferings. Do you know this God? Do you know him for yourself? Do you know him for the sake of of a broken and suffering world. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us to see you in this way as your word tells us to see you. Give us grace for comfort. Give us grace to believe. We pray with broken hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. Let's sing.